Rousseau believed, said this, Plato once described time as the moving image of eternity, and surely New Year's points to holiness amid change, to the dynamic nature of reality in which we can't step in the same waters once, much less twice, in which life, like God's mercies, is new every morning. So this is the second week of a short three-part series on time that we started at the turn of the year. When the calendars turn over, it tends to cause us all to think about the passing of time. And so we wanted, I wanted to do a short little series on time. Scripture says that God wants or is making us into new creatures. So the passing of time allows us to reflect on that, I think. To embrace it, to welcome it, if you will, to allow it to happen. Maybe a little more this year than we allowed it to happen last year. And we're using the story of the wedding at Cana from where our church gets its name, by the way, for, all you, for the visitors here this morning. As the background to explore time, the story presents us with two concepts of time. It presents us with Kronos, which we talked about last time, is our time, and Kairos, which is God's time. In the first part of the series, we learn that Jesus knew God's time was coming, but that he was still functioning on his time. That is why he said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And that was very understandable, we saw, because God's time was that time when Jesus would reveal himself as the Messiah, and that would put him firmly on the road to the cross. A road that meant betrayal, a road that meant torture, a road that meant death. So as a human, which Jesus perfectly was, it makes sense that he was not necessarily keen to get started on that road right away. So he was still functioning in his time. But then before long, everything changed. He did get involved. He did get involved. God's time came crashing down on his time. He changed the water into wine, which was the first sign that he was the Messiah. And so the first domino, if you will, was put in motion. And now there was no turning back. There was no more chronos. He was on the way to the cross. So the question that is this morning then, what happened? What happened that made Jesus go from his time to God's time? What happened? I believe the short answer is, that is who Jesus is. That is what it means to be Jesus. Now, if we're going to understand that answer, we need to start first by understanding weddings at that time and place. For they were not like our weddings at all today. Firstly, from my studies, it seems the weddings lasted for seven days. Okay, so that's a lot different than three or four hours. Secondly, the wedding and all the feasting and the drinking and the provision of hospitality was all part of a contract that the two families made. The fathers of the groom and bride made a contract at the time of betrothal, and part of that contract was this wedding celebration. Okay? So this was a big deal. This was not about who can throw the best party, whose maids of honors are wearing the prettiest gowns, none of that. That's not what this was about. This was a very serious contractual obligation, a very serious contractual responsibility. And the guest list was massive. It was pretty much the whole town and every possible living relative. Even those who had moved far away at your expense had to be brought back. And all of these people need to be taken care of for seven days. Seven whole days. Okay? So think about that, those of you who have been through a wedding recently. A major part of this responsibility would have been to not run out of wine. 
Okay, this wasn't an inconvenience. This wasn't the open bar at a d'oeuvres going to a cash bar at dinner. Okay, or this wasn't the bar closing at 10 and the dancing goes to 11. This was a very serious issue that took place. Wine at that time for that culture, the Jewish people especially, was extremely important at weddings. Their scriptures are filled with imagery of wine and its part in celebration. This is from the prophet Amos as an example of how wine was integral to celebration. So, this was no minor inconvenience. James Liggett writes, this was a major breach of the demands of hospitality. In fact, one scholar I read said that the bride's family could take legal action for the groom's family's failure to honor the contractual obligations of the marriage. Okay? So at a minimum, running out of wine would have been for both the groom's family and the newlywed couple a total disgrace with serious consequences. Serious. Okay? The rest of their lives, they would have been ridiculed, shunned, and made to feel worthless. This was a monumental failure that happened at the wedding at Cana. And it's difficult for us to completely understand this, right? We are so far removed from how this could be a monumental failure. But hopefully, hopefully, as difficult it is to put our minds in this, maybe this background has begun to open up the story a little bit more for you. Maybe some of the questions that you've often had, like, why was this such a big deal? Why did, was the first miracle Jesus ever did, turning water into wine, etc., etc.? Maybe they start to go away. Maybe we begin to sense there's something very important here. Maybe we begin to understand why John introduced this story with the powerful and spectacular words on the third day. On the third day. We all know what happened on the third day. Well, here John says on the third day, a wedding happened at Cana. So, now let's explore why Jesus, now let's try to explore why Jesus moved from Kronos, his time, to Kairos, God's time. He knew the wine running out would mean for this, he knew what the wine running out would mean for this young couple. Okay? So he had a decision to make. Does he remain on his timetable with his own life as a sole focus? His wants, his needs, his safety, etc., 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 or, or does he act then and there to meet the needs of others and in the presence forego his time and embrace God's? There's the decision. Well, Jesus loves others, truly. So he acted. The wedding was saved, the failure was transformed. So I want to think about this. I want to think about this. Many of us call ourselves Christians. Maybe everyone here this morning, maybe not. It doesn't matter. Everyone's welcome here at Cana, so it doesn't matter what you consider yourselves. But those of us that call ourselves Christians, what do we mean by that? I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to really think about it. If you define yourself as a Christian, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> In the original meaning of the word, it meant people who follow Jesus Christ. Who live like Christ. It didn't mean people who believe the right doctrines. It didn't believe, mean people who acquiesce to some knowledge or fact. It didn't even mean people who went to the right church or, or even align themselves with this new burgeoning religion called Christianity. That's not what it was. In the beginning, Christian, Christian meant people who follow Jesus, who did what he did and lived as he lived. Oh, look, those people just sold everything and they're helping others poor in, in their community. They, they're, they, they're Christians. They're doing what Jesus did. 
Oh, look, they're forgiving their enemies. Oh, they're, they're, they must be Christians. They're doing what Jesus did. Oh, look, they're getting killed at the Colosseum, and yet they're not raging and screaming and crying. They're on their knees and their face is peaceful. They must be Christians. They're doing what Jesus did. They're welcoming in refugees and others and all sorts of people. They, they're Christians. They, they, must, they must be Christians. They're doing what Jesus did. So this is what it meant. It was really people who believed in the kingdom Jesus spoke of and worked to make it a reality here on earth. Despite their circumstances and despite what the world's kingdoms were doing. That's what it meant. Consider this, James Liggett said, The first time Jesus made himself known, even to his own disciples, was not according to his plans or his time. It was in response to real and important human need. Think about that. Now, remember my short answer to the question of what made Jesus go from his time to God's time? That is, it is who Jesus is. And you see I got the day's theme in there. Everything I do, I do with you, Brian Adams. <laughs> if you were here for the opening video. <laughs> but that's the gospel. Jesus was not about Jesus. He was about others. This wedding story is the beginning of his revelation of what it means to be Jesus. Of what it means to be the Messiah. Of what it means to be God. And ultimately, whether we like it or not, it's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus' first sign of his true identity was done in response to the human need around him. What it means to be Jesus, then, is to love others, sacrificially and always. What it means to be his followers is the same, to love others, sacrificially and always. Or as our good friend Dave Bronson wrote it, in an amazing piece of writing, it is Christ's only calling to help. And by that I mean self-sacrificially, where my only judgment is held for myself, and my only responsibility is to lessen the overwhelming weight of this world on others' shoulders. And all of this at my own expense. See, we can't miss the enormity of this event at Cana by reducing the miracle to something it was not. This miracle cost Jesus everything. It was not some careful calculation of 10% of his income. This was everything he had, including his very life, given freely to love others. That's what this was. <coughs> And it is not correct to say, well, if I was God and would rise again, I would have done it too. For that maybe just reveals where our trust really is. See, we have been given the same promise, we'll rise again. Death has lost its way. So we need not fear living like Jesus now. Cana reveals, again, quoting Liggett, he who was... Who he was and what he had was not for him. It was always and only for others. 
So, I ask ourselves again, why do we call ourselves Christian? Why do we call ourselves Christian? The Corinthians had trouble understanding what it meant to be Christians. So in the lectionary, the lectionary is, is what more traditional churches will use for their scriptures through the years as they're teaching. And what the lectionary will do is they will take a psalm, an Old Testament reading, a gospel, and a New Testament reading. And those will be the scriptures for that given Sunday. And they always pair the wedding at Cana story with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it makes perfect sense. And if you were here, remember, when we went over 12, you'll, you'll know what I'm getting at. But if not, I'll remind you. See, the Christians in Corinth were all pretty confused about what it meant to be like Christ. So many problems had crept into their community. Some bizarre things, some pretty immoral things, but mostly some very selfish things. It seemed like the Corinthians had fallen back to their kindergarten days when everything was mine, with a capital M. Mine, mine, mine. And Paul had to remind them, yeah, actually, no. No. Each one is given for the common good. Hmm. It seems like Paul's message would be very important today for Christians. James Liggett, again, writes this about the Corinthians. They were saying things like, this gift is mine, this way of doing things is mine, this spirituality is mine, this special something is mine. What Paul says to them is what Jesus knew when the wine ran out at Cana. What you have is not for you. What you have is for others. To each is given for the common good. This is a fundamental truth about the nature and purpose of God. Then and now, what you have is not for you. What you have is not even about you. Jesus gave everything he had in loving others. This is the stuff of miracles. This is the stuff of miracles. And everything we have is for others too. And as I was studying this week, a new thought hit me, even though I've studied this wedding in Canaan many, many, many times and taught it a couple times. This new thought hit me this week. You know, one of the consistent questions I get from people when they find out I'm the pastor right after looking at me with 10 heads and asking me why I'm the pastor, which is probably because they're meeting me sitting in a pub having a beer, and that's probably why that says, what? One of the consistent questions is, why aren't there any miracles anymore? As I was studying this week, I was thinking about it. Maybe this is why. We don't give everything for others anymore. Read Jesus' miracles. Read the New Testament miracles. This was everything given for others. Remember, Jesus didn't just turn water into wine. He set himself on the road to the cross by helping this family. Hmm. But this is what's so incredible about this story. This is an invitation to live like Christ, to live lives of divine love, to recognize that all we have is a gift and it is given us so that we can in turn spend it in loving others, so that we can be givers so that we might build up, so that we might help those in need, so that we might be part of something greater than ourselves, so that we might love others without condition and without limits. That's Liggett again. But in short, so we might do miracles. This is an invitation to do miracles. 
And this is the good news that Jesus started here at the wedding at Cana. And I want to be sure that's what's heard. Up until this point, those of us that were brought up to read the Bible as imperative, and we have to follow it to make God happy, or he's going to be mad at us, or not love us, etc., etc. It would be easy up until this point of this teaching to think, oh, woe is me, I'm a horrible Christian. Yet, No, that's not what this teaching is about at all. This teaching is about inviting us into something incredible and miraculous. It's not about sitting here and saying, I'm a horrible Christian. It's about, oh, there's a better way to live. See, how many of us are struggling right now? No, I mean really struggling. How many of us are living lives dominated by fear? Because of our circumstances or other circumstances? And how many of us are trying to change that by being better at protecting ourselves? How many are trying to change our circumstances so that they better fit in with our needs and our wants and our desires? Well, maybe that pursuit of self-protection is exactly where we lost our way. See, we were not created to live lives of silent desperation, lives of possessiveness and jealousy and defensiveness and selfishness, even in the face of horrible circumstances. The earliest followers of Jesus lived in horrific circumstances. They continued to follow Jesus. See, we destroy ourselves when we live that way. I had the privilege of listening to this amazing, amazing, amazing minister this last Sunday give a speech on Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was spectacular. And he reminded us that the word sin is sin. It's that, that thing that has broken everything. Because the word for world, there isn't us. It's the cosmos. It's everything created. And he talked about how, you know, that sin, that sin, that I am God. It's all about me and self-protection. Destroyed relationship with God, with each other, with the world around us, with the cosmos. And you've got to have your head in the sand not to know that that's what's wrong with the world. And has always been what's wrong with the world. And I find it fascinating that eons later, eons later, that thing that was so clearly identified by God as sin initially is now not called sin anymore. It's not even called something bad. It's the way we're supposed to do life. Including from pulpits. It's the new theology. Me first. All it does is destroy us. That's all it does. Well, it feels good for a while. I'm taking care of myself. It doesn't last. If it was so good, the world would not look the way it does. Because everyone's doing it. The proof is in the pudding, to use an old 
silly phrase. I don't even know. You need to find the origins of that phrase. <laughs> Here's the good news. We don't have to. Jesus revealed a better way, his way, a life of giving, of helping, of loving, a life of miracles. Don't we want to live miracles? I would love to do miracles. When we're honest with ourselves, we live committed to the confines and impossibilities of our time. When all around us, just waiting for us to join it, is the freedom and possibilities of God's time. We need God's time, don't we? We need the miracle of the wedding at Cana. The gospel says we can have it. The challenge is it's so contrary to all we know and believe about life. I get that. But I am convinced the older I get and the more I seek to follow Jesus, that if we would just try to let go of our lives and give life to others, we would find the true life we have been fearfully trying to hold on to all along. A life that ultimately is lived in abundance because when we sacrificially live for others, when we love others with all that we have, we will discover that water becomes wine, the jars are filled to overflowing, transformation comes to us, and redemption comes to the world around us. So, in this new year of our time, May we together be courageous enough to try God's time. We might just find ourselves living in heaven. Amen. Thank you for being.